This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It's Sunday. It is Journal Club Week. How are you guys doing today? I'm tired. <laughs> You're, it's not Sunday, but it is. When are we recording this? Tuesday, Monday, your post call. <laughs> That's right. I'm pre call. That's right. Um, That's right. But you know. But, we, but we're getting it done. So happy to be here, journal clubbing with everybody today. <laughs> That's right. Um, Priya, how, how's life for you? Good. Good. It's it's busy, but everybody's busy. So, but I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, um, we are um, finalizing the preparations for the Delphi conference. We're so excited We're so to have excited. so to so have so many fun. speakers. I saw I saw that I didn't want to brag, but like I saw on Twitter that people were having a discussion with uh, Fumi Hiko from That's Japan right. about like cord That's management so cool. and all that stuff. And I was like, and they're like, oh, how do you guys do it in Japan? I'm like, man, like he'll be here. In, yeah, come in, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I was like, yeah, he'll be here. Like you can talk to him about like how they, like, this is literally why we invited him because he'll be here to talk about some of the ways they approach uh, some of the same things that we do in Japan and how are their outcomes differing from ours. Um, and this is going to be basically the theme of the entire conference. We wanted to give our listeners who um, are considering registration an opportunity to uh, have some sort of of perk. So if you are a listener and you are registering for the conference, please, um, starting today, you can go on the registration and use the discount code incubator and you will get, I think 30% off the price of registration. Um, so, um, yeah, the code is incubator spelled like an incubator. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's, it's not lower, <laughs> lowercase, uppercase, everything works, but, uh, yeah. So we wanted to give something to our listeners. And so here, here it is. And not to put the pressure but, on, yeah. but for people who want to come and stay using the hotel block at the local hotel where we have transportation back and forth, the last date we said February 27th. So yeah. So if you want to take advantage of our discounted rates, yeah, absolutely. You should, you should, uh, register soon. Um, and we look forward to seeing everybody there. Um, it's going to be a fun one. All right. So uh, I guess we can start. Uh, Priya, you want to you get us started? So yeah, the first paper I'm looking at today is the overuse of reflux medication in infants. And the author here is Elizabeth Wolf. Um, this was published in Pediatrics, and she's from the Children's Hospital of Richmond, so in Virginia. And I think this is a familiar topic to all of us. We all know that, you know, there's a distinct difference between gastroesophageal reflux, which occurs in many children, so two-thirds of healthy infants, and usually resolves by one year of age, versus gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD. So that reflux really can involve poor weight gain, pain, or mucosal injury on 
endoscopy. And so what we're finding is that often it's difficult for providers to distinguish between reflux and reflux disease especially given the assessment of pain, which is much more subjective. Um, And so the use of acid suppressants obviously decreases gastric acidity, but it's not effective against reflux. And the use of these um, acid suppressants, um, histamine receptor agonists and PPIs, is really linked to this higher risk of serious infections and fractures. And therefore, Choosing Wisely and the AAP have recommended against their use in infants with um, gastroesophageal reflux. So the question the authors are posing here, are what are the individual and healthcare system characteristics associated with acid suppressant overuse using a statewide all-payer claim database from the most recent years available with the newer ICD-10 codes. And the reason why they're using these uh, newer codes is that these codes actually can distinguish between reflux and reflux disease. And so for the study's design, they're using data from the Virginia All Pairs Claim Database. They also use the zip codes to identify and classify the education, demographic, and geographic estimates program. So the study included infants 0 to 11 months of age with at least 30 days of continuous enrollment between 2016 and 2019. And they excluded any diagnosis of pediatric complex chronic conditions at any point in the patient record. So the they actually did two separate analyses here, one in which GERD was an exclusion criteria and one in which it was not. And the way they define GERD is they looked at esophagitis, ulcers, and weight loss, along with other exclusion-based criteria in an earlier claims Based study. And those were identified by ICD 9 or 10 codes. And when they were applied one to two days before uh, H2 receptor antagonists or PPI prescriptions. And the statistical analysis they used here was a multivariate binomial regression model that modeled the rate for H2RAs and PPIs using sex, insurance, type, uh, rurality, and indicators for low birth weight and prematurity. So what the uh, results were is that they analyzed 270,000 infants aged 0 to 11 months. Uh, Those were identified. And after they removed those with medical complexity and no prescriptions for the acid suppression, they were left with 16,910, which is 7% of the patients were prescribed these um, acid suppressants. After removing the medical exclusions, so those with GERD, we, we then had 5,433. So 2% of the patients in this database were included in the analysis. And when you compare that to earlier studies, they really sh- uh, showed something similar, 2 to 6% that were prescribed an acid suppressant. So the this is really on the lower end. And the authors uh, said that maybe it's because of that choosing wisely recommendation or some of the other literature that's out there or that, you know, the exclusion criteria did did um, exclude those uh, patients with GERD. So what we found here is that the odds of being prescribed these acid suppressants were higher in males and those with commercial insurance compared to those with public insurance and in rural settings versus both urban and suburban settings. Removing the GERD as an exclusion factor did not meaningfully or substantially change the estimates. 
Um, and so, you know, there's several limitations here. We went from using ICD-9 codes where you couldn't differentiate to then using ICD-10 codes. And so there's really not uh, a one-to-one mapping that makes comparisons from new to older data. Um, and then there was a thought that maybe clinicians might be upcoding from the diagnosis of uh, gastroesophageal exactly. reflux. Yep to gastroesophageal reflux disease to sort of justify the medical management. And of course, like me being the pharmacist here, I would have been interested to see the difference between H2 receptor antagonists versus PPIs. I think there was a thought at some point that you would start on the H2 and then move to the PPI. Um, And, you know, so do you lump them together? Is there a difference in those two patient uh, populations there? Um, But overall, the conclusion by the authors was that acid suppressant overuse remains a persistent problem, particularly among commercially insured infants and those residing in rural areas. Reduction efforts should include providers and patients outside of urban academic children's hospitals to achieve maximal benefit. Um, So it is interesting in the sense that there are two main populations that they saw um, in terms of insurance and in terms of where folks live. Um, And so they really say, you know, maybe if you're not affiliated with an academic center, that's where you need to start working on this reduction. Right. Um, I have a, a few questions for you. So yeah. can you, I'm, I'm thinking like if I'm listening in the car to this, can you walk me through again why GERD is like an exclusion criteria? Because it's a bit, I, I think I understand what they're trying to do, but you're thinking if, if you ex- aren't like, wouldn't you want to not exclude babies with GERD? So why, why would they, why would they have that as an exclusion criteria? Well, they did the analysis two different ways, right? So one was because that piece of pain is so subjective. Mm -hmm. So one, they did the analysis, one excluding the patients which were GERD and then one in which it was not just to see if there was any difference in the rates. um, And then if there were um, any differences again in the patient population. Um, But yeah, I, you know, they didn't really explain why or why not they they did that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, um, so, so the problem I think with this study is that, um, while it is extremely valuable information, then it's always what you were describing in the end in the discussion, which is something that they also mentioned, the authors are mentioning in their conclusion, which is, is it a chicken or the egg, right? Is it, is it that you then, because it's a coding analysis of a coding database. The question is, if a parent presents with a baby and they say, oh, my baby is fussy. And, and so they, they really give you a story of GERD and you and you and maybe you are pushed to prescribe uh, a PPI or an H2RA, then are you going to then code because you prescribed the medication because right. of the of the irritability that was presented? So I think it's it's a bit cyclical. Um, and so it's, it's hard to know which one is driving which. But I think uh, the idea behind the exclusion, if I understand what you said correctly, is that they wanted to uh, uh, take at face value the fact that if you had GERD, then the prescription was justified, I guess. Um, yes. Right. Okay. And then, and then if you removed it, then it was like, well, if you don't have GERD, then you shouldn't be really on a uh, PPI. And then why, why are they being prescribed? But overall, it's kind of cool to see that like, 
I like that we're publishing, I guess, quote unquote, negative results where we say, well, actually, it's not that bad. Like it's actually following the recommendation. So that's that's kind of neat. <laughs> yeah, no. And I do think like this this topic has come up several times and, you know, they're doing due diligence by looking back and saying, are we doing a good enough mm-hmm. job here? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. And then something that that is something that in the NICU, uh, we are extremely um, uh big players in 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 this in this in this phenomenon where there where um it's been well described that we 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 are using these medications quite routinely and the baby the babies do go home on it and god knows that as parents take their babies home they're very reluctant to stop or modify any medication that was started in the NICU because that's sort of what's that gets assumed to be something that saved the baby's life and so um yeah so we have to, we have a duty to make sure that we uh we are prescribing these carefully and do you think ben so the commercial insurance piece of it like do, is there a problem with coverage in terms of you know sometimes these medications are compounded i know that the, there are some now that come in a kit that's easier to be um dispensed or readily available in the pharmacies do you think that plays an issue in terms of why you know why you know i was uh thinking of i think it's such a it's such a loaded um piece of data because is it is it like you said is it the insurance that's not going to cover your nexium or whatever whatever uh other uh, brand name medication technically um meprazole so there they are they are good medications that have been um that are very cheap but also you wonder if it is something where um, people with commercial insurance are more likely to are more likely to have the social uh, luxury of yeah. go to, going to their pediatrician to say, oh, my baby is a little bit fussy after feeds. And right. Or and is it something that with with public insurance where that's a complaint that unfortunately doesn't cross the threshold of parents taking their car or taking public transportation to go to the pediatrician to bring that up and and that just sort of falls by the wayside i think these are all assumptions but 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 i think i think technically could all play a role so i don't know the answer i was thinking about that when you mentioned the the, the finding okay i guess i am next I'm going to start with a brief communication in the Journal of Perinatology. And we will see why it is interesting because I have two papers that are following one another. And this one is called uh, Mannequin to Patient Intubation. Does it translate? Question mark. First author is Jennifer Rumpel. Rumpel. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. Uh, but uh, And this is coming out of a group in the U.S. Um and the question that is being asked, and the background is actually quite interesting. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Many trainees uh, do not successfully demonstrate procedural competence, and uh, there's less and less opportunities for them to perform endotracheal intubation. And when you compound these two things where the frequency of intubation is uh, reduced and their opportunities to perform them is reduced, you are creating a framework where many, many trainees are leaving fellowships and other training um, other training uh, periods with without potentially the competency to perform these intubations on a cons- successfully on a consistent basis. Um, they are quoting some data from the anesthesia world 
that mentions that uh, you would need at least 47 intubation attempts to be uh, to require what's called procedural competence, uh, defined as like 90% success rate. And as we'll see, it's something that's super difficult to come by when you are in the NICU. So the question that they were that the authors were trying to address was to determine if simulation training with instructors using video laryngoscopy to guide residents who were uh, using um, who were using uh, direct laryngoscopy would improve intubation success rates of their residents beginning at the at the beginning of their NICU rotations. So they looked at um, participating residents who were uh, PGYs one through four and who rotated through the NICU in one month increments and basically were quasi randomized according to the month of service to either receive uh, the control or the intervention plus control. And the they had like 51 residents in each cohort. So what's the control? The control was that they had a, an intubation practice for 15 minutes during orientation with a uh, mannequin uh, uh, intubation head. Basically, it's like this full-term infant head that we've all seen. And they would use direct laryngoscopy with a Miller 1 blade under the supervision of a neonatologist or faculty member. And then the control group then had real-world intubation experience during their NICU month and PICU months as well. So that's sort of, that's how I did it. And that's how, um, that was their control group. Now, the intervention had a bit of more sophisticated setup where they basically had a 30-minute educational session facilitated by uh, one neonatologist within the first three days of their NICU rotation. So now, like this happens now just before they entered the NICU. And they discuss various things, equipment needed for intubation, ET tube size, depth of insertion, mecha correct mechanics and, and verification, ways to verify the, the placement of the ET tube. Then they had like one-on-one -on -one training with a mannequin, but this time it wasn't like the, the old crummy full-term head. It was like a 25-week mannequin. Like, you know, uh, I think it's called Little Annie and they have, the, they have the model in the paper. And they used the CMAC video laryngoscopy. So now they actually had uh, video laryngoscopy and they could see what the residents were doing on the screen and they were using a Miller Zero Blade. Now um, they had like the camera connected to a monitor um, and they were able to give real-time feedback to the residents. Um, they made the, the, the instructors made corrections while viewing the video, and um, but uh, and then and then the residents were able to uh, practice again using direct laryngoscopy. Um, they could repeat and they could practice on this for uh, uh, however long they needed until they were consistently able to intubate a baby within fifteen seconds. And obviously, a successful intubation was just pass the tube through the cord. So what are some of the things that they found? And so surprisingly, they found that it, this, this intervention did not significantly increase the first attempt or overall success rate of intubation on live neonates. The control group had a first attempt success rate of 28% compared to 35% in the intervention plus control. So technically a little bit higher, like 7% higher, but definitely not a statistically significant difference. Um, the control group had an overall intubation success rate of 55% uh, versus 50% for the intervention and control. Now, what's interesting is that, and that's something that's mentioned in the result, is that the intervention group had more intubation encounter. 
And they're saying, huh, that, that's interesting that the, the, the people who got more thorough and extensive training had more encounters. And they hypothesized that the intervention itself made the residents probably more comfortable and confident with the procedure that sort of led them to proactively uh, seek out these opportunities to intubate live neonates. And I think there's not real way to prove that based on the data that they're showing. But if that's the case, I think that's, that's pretty neat. Um, Interestingly then enough, they're looking at the overall opportunities and they're saying that residents had limited opportunity to perform intubations on live neonates during their uh, NICU rotations. For the entire cohort of 102 residents, right, there was a median of two intubations that were performed by each residence on live neonates during their month-long rotation. So that's, that's extremely small. Um, and finally, residents in their program perform four NICU rotations, meaning that they will mostly all graduate with uh, fewer, uh, performing fewer than 10 neonatal intubation during their residency. And so when you compare that to some of the data that was presented in the background, where we're talking about like close to 50 intubation in, in according to anesthesia data, that, that, that leads to performance uh, success and, and competence. This is, this is quite frightening. And so the conclusion of the paper is that in, in this one-on-one simulation training of residents using a, a neonatal mannequin and video laryngoscopy, really did not increase the residents' intubation success rate with live neonates. There's a potential that maybe the intervention could have an effect if residents had more opportunity, but we unfortunately, the system is set up in a way that this was not feasible. And so they're proposing a few changes, which is allowing trainees to view laryngoscopy feeds on the large screen during intubation of live neonates, to consistently use pre-medication for intubation, to offer weekly simulation training in the NICU and to use a validated competency assessment tool during simulation training. So, yeah, so this is really interesting. I have two things to say here. I mean, this this concept of simulation is obviously not new, especially for intubation. However, this the use of video laryn- laryngoscope, I think, is it's really variable. So some units have it. Some say it's not easily accessible when they're going to intubate. Um, and while you think like this is a tool that's supposed to help with the comfort of intubation, what if when they when they're like in practice they don't have that? So are they are you now becoming dependent on technology that may not always be available to you, um, which is you know sort of a double edged sword there? Um, and the other piece of this I think that was interesting um, is that. Well, now that I've now I've forgotten what I was. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's something else I wanted to say about this because I do. Um, oh, was the challenge of intubation with all of the people in the unit that want to mm-hmm. learn, right? Ah, so we have so nurse practitioners. I'm going have... to get to that okay. in a second. Okay. Um, okay. Because I have a follow-up paper then. The, I think it's always interesting when you find papers in different journals that are sort of addressing some of the similar things. And I think this is the, the beauty of doing the, the journal club. So the second paper I want to present then is published in the Journal of Perinatology. It's coming from Canada, and it's called A Tiny Baby Intubation Team Improves Endotracheal Intubation Success Rates But Decrease Residence Training Opportunities. First author is Dr. Uh, Gariepi Assal uh, and colleagues, and it's a great follow-up to the paper that we just reviewed. Um, in the background, they mentioned a lot of things that we've talked about on the podcast again, that intubation of ELBWs 
is extremely dangerous and it presents an increased risk of neurological injury related to the intubation. Multiple attempts is associated with worse outcomes. Increased physician training level is associated with increased success rate of endotracheal intubation, which emphasizes the value of the intubation being done by the most qualified person. But the problem is that there are multiple obstacles like PREI, like you just were mentioning. There's more use of non-invasive ventilation. There are few medical, fewer medical indications for intubation in neonates. And then, like you said, there's the presence of other healthcare professionals in the NICU. There's residents, there's fellows, there's PAs, there's nurse practitioners, there's RTs. And that creates a crowded field. Um, and so there's, um, an, right, and, and the implementation of reduced work hours uh, have led to trainees reduced exposure to potential opportunities. Um, and so all that really contributes to the opportunities of trainees having decreased. Now, I must say, they don't mention the reduced work hour directives in the background as like something that needs to be changed back, but they're making a, 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 a sweeping assessment of all the different factors that have led to trainees having less opportunities. And we'll see that in the protocol that they've outlined, that's not something that they are trying to uh, change. The question that they had was, um, um, the, 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 question, the, the, the goal of the study, I guess, is to assess the impact of implementing a tiny baby intubation team on the quality of care surrounding endotracheal intubation, as well as the educational impact. So this was a retrospective study at St. Justine University Hospital in Quebec, Canada. And um, historically, they, had, they have about 600 neonatal endotracheal intubation in the NICU and delivery room each year. Now, what they're noticing is that in the past few decades, the number of intubations has decreased. So it went from 500 in 2009 to 220 in 2015 to approximately 160 in 2021. I thought, like, right, we know this, but when you actually see the numbers, you're like, oh shit, <laughs> this is this is a dramatic reduction. So um, I have to close my notes are popping up in different. Okay, there we go. Now, during the three-year core training, pediatric residents complete four one-month rotations to cover calls in the NICU. Now, all intubation performed in the delivery room or the NICU during the three time periods were evaluated um, in the following way. They had a first time point, first epoch from 2012 to 2014, which is before they implemented this tiny baby intubation team. Then they had 2014 to 2015, which was six months after the implementation of a tiny baby intubation team. And then finally, from 2018 to 2020, which is four years after the intubation uh, team was set up. And what they noticed was they had to create um, an action plan after the second, so six months after the implementation of the of the of the tiny baby intubation team, they realized that they needed to to effect some changes to make sure that their residents were going to get better opportunities and better success rate. So what are what is this action plan looking like? Number one, intubation goes to the resident first, and they try to use the person who has the least experience. So like they try to prop up the person who needs to practice. They all carry a logbook so that they can log their procedures. They use video laryngoscopy for the first five intubations, and they have simulation training uh, prior to real-life attempt. What's the tiny baby intubation team? It's for basically any baby that is born below 29 weeks or with a birth weight less than 1,000 grams. And the tiny baby team includes a resident, a fellow, um, 
uh, a neonatal nurse practitioner, a neonatologist, and a respiratory therapist. The primary outcome of the study is to look at first attempt success rates and proportion of endotracheal tube intubation attempted by residents. The secondary outcome is second attempt success rates and number of attempts by uh, and resident success per endotracheal intubation. I feel like these papers are extremely valuable because these are things we all struggle with between uh, balancing the safety of the patient and make sure that the babies doesn't get exposed to, to negative outcomes, all the while fostering uh, an educational uh, environment for, for, for our trainees. So I'm very much fascinated by these papers. So 646 endotracheal intubations were included in this analysis. They had 250 in the first epoch, 196 in the second epoch, which was six months after the intubation team was set up, and 201 in the third epoch, which is when four years after the intubation team was set up. So the results are quite interesting. First attempt, first attempt success rates. So how successful were they on the first try in tiny babies increased between period one and period two from 44 to 59%. So that was a significant improvement and was stable thereafter in the third epoch to 56%. So setting up a team that's dedicated to these babies specifically improves their first attempt success rate. The number of attempts per intubation for tiny patients decreased right after the implementation of the tiny baby intubation team from a median of two attempts to one attempt in the second epoch. The number of attempts per intubation for non-tiny baby patients decreased several years after the, after the implementation of a tiny baby intubation team from a median of two to uh, a median of one in epoch three. So interestingly enough, the the expertise learned from the tiny baby unit, uh, the tiny baby intubation team sort of almost seems to have crossed over to the non-tiny baby where the success rates are even higher than. Now let's talk about our residents. So the proportion of endotracheal intubation performed by residents decreased after the implementation of the tiny baby intubation team. And it went down from 53% in epoch one to 37% in epoch two, regardless of patient's weight and gestational age at intubation. So less opportunities for the residents. After the implementation of these action plans that we talked about, including training, logbooks, and so on, the residents overall um, and non-tiny baby intubation success rate improved going from 60% to 79% for overall endotracheal intubations and from 60% to 82% for endotracheal intubations performed in non-tiny babies. So they had less opportunities, but they were somehow more successful at it. Um, the residence success rate remained stable for tiny babies between uh, period two and period three at around 60%. The conclusions of the paper is that the development of a tiny baby intubation team decreases the number of endotracheal intubations performed by residents in training, and conscious effort must be made in order to find other ways to ensure appropriate exposure to the procedure. And they're mentioning that prioritizing residents' uh, intubation experience in non-tiny baby video laryngoscopy use and simulation-based training are important elements that need to be emphasized to ensure adequate procedural training. So these two papers are showing interesting things. One of them is struggling with a way to actually increase competency, while this one is showing that there are their system seems to increase competency, but they still haven't figured out how to increase exposure. Um, and okay. so... Uh, I leave that question to the audience. I guess to you too. I guess I'm, but I'm not going to step foot in that uh, landmine. 
You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> the The breadth of pediatrics is growing exponentially, right? And like, do all pediatric residents need to learn how to intubate? It's an interesting question, right? Depending on what they're going to do with their careers. Right. right now, that's that's the criteria. But there's definitely a, a proportion of them that really do need the practice, right? Those of them going into the procedural subspecialties. Um, but so it's interesting. I, I, I wonder. I'm going to I'm going to be devil's advocate here, and I'm going to tell you, you may be a pediatrician, and this this study is coming from Canada. Like there are there are underserved area where you are the only Absolutely. you're the only sort of children physician Absolutely. and and you may be faced with an intubation i think yeah and i think those people learn to do a lot of stuff that they didn't do in residency right yeah. <laughs> like yeah and uh, so our rural docs are really a yeah. jack of all trades That's exactly right? right so yeah and yeah. and I know like the NRP now for resuscitation has some wording or recommendations about the use of LMA in bigger kids. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, you know, maybe there'll be technology out there that should help us with this <laughs> like ease a, of intubation successful. Like, a self, like the know? Tesla, like a self-intubating. Yeah, uh... <laughs> exactly. Drive it yourself, you know, just, yeah. And I know there, there are institutions that are working on this too, is, you know, how, how can you coach? How can you do that without? being right there um and so i i yeah. think it's an important area but i you do hear like we're doing less intubations how can we train and and when there are so many people who want to do this right mm -hmm. like every um every discipline ha may have some sort of a role in intubation so yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Good, that's good articles this episode is so proudly sponsored by reckitt meet johnson Reckitt Me Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive NFML portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meetjohnson.com. So I'm going to present this paper from the Journal of Perinatology. You know I love TC Billy. So it's <laughs> the transcutaneous bilirubin levels in extremely preterm infants less than 30 weeks gestation. The lead author, um, Mira Sankar, and the trailing author, Minaj Binwale. So they really wanted to determine the relationship between transcutaneous bilirubin levels and total serum bilirubin levels in extremely preterm infants. Because at most places, we're using transcutaneous bilies to help us um, – uh, screen for uh, increasing bilirubin levels in the term population, but in general, not in the preterm population. So I thought this was a, an interesting study. So the primary outcome was really how well did the transcutaneous measurements approximate the serum bilirubin measurements. And um, the study design was a prospective multi-center study of extremely preterm infants less than 30 weeks gestation across eight NICUs in California. Um, they looked at the differences between paired transcutaneous bilirubins and um, total serum bilirubin values. And then they kind of stratified it based on gestational age, birth weight, race and ethnicity, chronological age, as well as um, during and after phototherapy, which is kind of a controversial question because in general, we don't follow um, transcutaneous billy measurements uh, after phototherapy has been initiated. 
So they had 141 extremely preterm infants between 22 and 4 sevenths and 30 and 0 sevenths weeks of gestation. They had 755 paired transcutaneous bilirubins in um, total serum bilirubin measurements obtained from these infants, um, somewhere between uh, day of life 0 and day of life 18. So I we'll post these graphs, but I think they're really, really useful. So really the, the primary outcome uh, was looking at the variation. So they took three values um, for each transcutaneous bilirubin measurement, and the mean coefficient of variation among the three values recorded with each transcutaneous measurement was 10.9% for transcutaneous bilirubin values greater than five. And to minimize variability related to dispersion, they used the highest measured transcutaneous bilirubin levels for all comparisons. They took three. They took the highest measurement when comparing it to the serum bilirubin. Um, it's interesting. Uh, they had an institution using the BiliCheck bilimeter, and then most of the other institutions were using the Drager bilimeter, and there were some differences. So the mean transcutaneous bilirubin using BiliCheck bilimeter read 2.85 milligrams per deciliter higher than um, total serum bilirubin. This was statistically significant. And they found a pretty um, poor correlation. So the Pearson cor correlation coefficient comparing the TCB and TSB in the BiliCheck group was 0.506. Um, however, with the Drager bilimeter, uh, they uh, found a strong direct linear correlation, an R of 0.786. Um, between the total serum billy and the transcutaneous billy rubin values. Um, and so their graph is literally almost like a perfect fit. So that is definitely something to take a look at. Um, total serum billy values range from 0 to 12.6, and the uh, transcutaneous billy values range from 0 to 14.2. Total serum billy was predicted with a high degree of accuracy, and they give us an equation at total, total serum billy equals 2.37 plus 0.54 times the transcutaneous bilirubin uh, level. Um, I told you about the Bland-Altman plot that showed a significant agreement between total serum bilirubin and transcutaneous uh, bilirubin values. Um, and the, the, the bias line did show that trans, uh, total serum bilirubin was 0.33 milligrams per deciliter higher than the transcutaneous bilirubin with the majority of points falling, um, in plus or minus 1.96 standard deviations of the difference between serum billy and transcutaneous billy. They wanted to look at the difference between um, the stratification of gestational age subgroups, and the subgroup analysis showed that the strong correlation uh, persisted across all three gestational age subgroups. They looked at different birth weight groups, which also showed good correlation between uh, TSB and TCB levels. All race and ethnic groups, including um, Asian infants who are at high risk for um, uh, elevated bilirubin levels um, showed strong correlation. And in that group in particular, the R equals 0.808. Interestingly, the correlation was stronger in infants more than one week of age compared to younger infants. 
And then they did do this subgroup of uh, infants uh, who were receiving phototherapy. So they had 274 transcutaneous bilirubin measurements taken during phototherapy. And the correlation was still similar, whether infants were receiving phototherapy or not. Um, and then finally, they said, okay, what, what were the results that were kind of too abnormal? So they found disparities in only 2.5% of paired TC billies and total serum billy measurements in which the totus, total serum billy read higher than 2 milligrams per deciliter from the transcutaneous billy levels and that infants would have qualified uh, for phototherapy based on the total serum billy levels, but not with the transcutaneous billy levels. They didn't mention which levels they were using. Maybe I, I'll go back and check one more time if they're using the new, the updated bilirubin guidelines for that. But overall, the study supports the use of a transcutaneous bilimeter as a screening tool for monitoring jaundice in extremely preterm infants. Thoughts? I have tons of thoughts. Okay. I think this is, this is earth shattering. Because yeah. how many, t I think the, how many times do we stick them? How many times do we stick them? And I also think, I think it's more pervasive than this. I think the serum belly checked in preterm baby is an open invitation to draw more lambs, right? So you're like, well, if, absolutely. Like, if, I got to get a belly. So I might as well. That's exactly right. Right. <laughs> how many times have we said, well, I'm sticking the kid for the belly might as well get some other stuff. And now, um, <laughs> Also, there's always the concern with transcutaneous, especially in full term, like, oh, you know, above a certain level, then it's sort of no longer reliable. But how many times have we seen in very tiny babies, bellies of like 12, 14? It's extremely rare. It's extremely rare. So mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. the fact, I'm not surprised that it correlates at low level. Um, and and so I think I think this is something I definitely want to want to try out and see if if we can reduce our, because this, this has a potential to affect... Uh, the amount of blood that we draw, the number of transfusions mm -hmm. we give, and so and on. And it's a lot of blood, right? Yeah, these, these for the smallest babies. It's it's a large I mean, proportion. Yeah, it's a large proportion of their blood volume, even though we're using the micro micro containers. But still, it's like um, I, I could now get away with doing these iStats, Epoch, whatever people call them, where I, I can do with 0.3 ml. I can do a gas, a pretty much a BMP, get a crit, but that's it. And and to just get an additional billy would be an additional 0.5 ml. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, of blood. Sorry, Priya, I interrupted. Oh you. no, I was just going to ask. You said this may change your clinical practice in the sense that you feel a little more comfortable just doing the transcutaneous billy. Do you think there's going to be an overlap where people are going to say, "Oh, well, I, I've got to see if I trust this," or do you think it would be a, sh a shift automatically? I mean, it's going to take some time, right? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna test it out. I think I think you, you mm -hmm. don't really have to in be parallel. And also, sure. I mean, I'm sorry to say, like the management of hyperbilirubinemia in preterm babies is a crapshoot, right? We don't have, mm -hmm. we don't have guidelines. We, it goes up, we start the photo, then we stop it. Then we know it's yeah. going to go back up a little bit and so on. So it's like, I mean, do we really need to have such an accurate measurement to make a decision? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. So, um, that's, that's, I'm very excited about that paper. Thank you for reviewing it. Me too. For sure. All right. Priya, you want to, you want to go last or you want to, you want to squeeze in your, your next paper here? I don't care. Let's go. 
Okay. So the next paper I have is um, one on anti-seizure medication at discharge in infants with HIE. It's an ob- observational study. The first mm-hmm. author here is Liz Sewell, who's from memory. Um, but this is really the NICHD group, the NRN, that published this article. And I think it's yeah, an interesting... I- yeah. I, I want to give a few mentions of the, the list of authors. Number one, uh, Sita, Sh- Sita Shankaran is second author. So mm-hmm. um, a massive name in the in the context of cooling and HIE. Um, I think uh, Nathalie Maitre is also on there. Ravi Patel is last author. Abbott Laptok is on there. Uh, Shannon Hamrick, who was on the podcast as well. I always mm-hmm. very much appreciate to see uh, Ira um, Adams Chapman on there as well. Um, her work continues to live on. Uh, so this is, uh, yeah, this is a paper that that's uh, worth checking out. Okay. So um, just, yeah, the background here is that obviously I think we're all aware that these anti-seizure medications that we use in the NICU can be neurotoxic and the duration of, for treatment of acute symptomatic seizures in newborns is really variable. So the article does a great job showing the variation of this within centers. Um, and the in 2011, the WHO recommended to consider early discontinuation of anti-seizure medications in newborns with normal neurological exams and EEGs. However, there's a lot of um, uh, variation, like we talked about, uh, that occurs. And um, this this topic actually has been studied by another author, Hannah Glass, published in 2021, looking at data from a neonatal seizure registry for varying etiologies of acute symptomatic seizures that suggested that discontinuation prior to discharge did not increase the risk of functional disability or epilepsy at 24 months. So the author group here, the question they ask is, what is the association between discharge with or without anti-seizure medications and death or moderate to severe disability in infants with HIE and seizures? Um, so the study design is, is unique. They looked at three different trials, combined them together. This is over a 14-year span. So it's a retrospective study of infants enrolled in the induced hypothermia, which is 2000 to 2003, the optimizing cooling, 2010 to 2013, and late hypothermia, 2008 to 2014. And these trials were conducted at 22 of the NICHD network centers. The inclusion criteria for all three trials were pretty similar. So two of the studies, it was gestational age of greater than or equal to 36 weeks, presence of acidosis or a sentinel event with moderate or severe encephalopathy within six hours. And then the other study was identical, but the randomization could occur at six to 24 hours postnatal age. And the analysis included um, infants with documented clinical or uh, electrographic seizures treated with anti-seizure medications who survived to discharge. It was regardless of hypothermia treatment. And one thing to note here is that the continuous e- use of continuous EEG and seizure management was per the individual center or clinician. There was no protocol to standardize that. And also that the specific type and dose and duration of the anti-seizure medications were not collected. So obviously they excluded all um, patients that didn't have documented anti-seizure medications at discharge or if there was any missing documentation. Um, And they did a very um, uh, 
robust statistical analysis. They accounted for, you know, the severity of the HIE, hypothermia treatment, the five-minute APGAR score, birth year, discharge on tube or gavage feeds, any use of EEG, and then the center. So there was some control for that. And they also had an expanded model that included sex and abnormal neurologic a discharge exam, and they went even further and did a sensitivity analysis, um, including only infants who had an EEG performed, adjusting for the presence or absence of electrographic seizures, and then a secondary se- uh, sensitivity analysis that was the same, including the sex and abnormal neurologic discharge charge exam. So the results were um, they had 740 infants that were enrolled in these NRN hypothermia trials, 302 met inclusion criteria, and of these, 61% or 184 were continued on anti-seizure medication at discharge. And so one of the nice um, figures that they have there is they they mapped out all 22 centers, and there is a range from 13 to 100 um, percent in terms of what what centers you know kept their kids on anti seizure medications at discharge, and that's a huge range. So it just shows the variation of care. Um, they they also looked at maternal and neonatal characteristics, and when you look at that table, the intrapartum Partum complications were slightly higher in those discharged home on anti-seizure medications. Um, they also had a table looking at the hospital course that showed pretty similar um, outcomes. But severe HIE presented in 24% of those discharged on anti-seizure medications compared compared with 22% of those discharged without. So there really was no difference in severe HIE. Um, when they looked at the abnormal neurological exam, 57% were discharged home on anti-seizure medications versus 46% without. Um, and where there was a little bit of a difference is discharge with gavage or tube feeds occurred in 27% of those discharged home on anti-seizure medications versus 19% without. The primary outcome was death after discharge or moderate or severe disability, um, and that occurred in 44% of the infants with anti-seizure medications at discharge versus 28% without. So actually higher in those that were discharged home on anti-seizure medications. Um, And then, you know, one of the other outcomes that they looked at, obviously, they looked at the combined death or, or moderate slash severe disability. But then they also looked at death alone and then the outcomes looking at the Bailey 2 and Bailey 3 scores uh, for cognitive and motor. And there was really no difference when you looked at those separately. Um, I thought it was very interesting. Uh, They looked at parent-reported post-discharge seizures. So with the parent report there, 36% of infants discharged on anti-seizure medications reported a, a, a seizure versus 13% without um, anti-seizure medications. Um, and then among infants with EEG performed, the adjusted odds ratio between anti-seizure medication at discharge and the primary outcome was 1.79. And in the sensitivity analysis limited to just 96 infants with the electrographic seizures, the odds ratio was 1.42.
So in the discussion, they talk about, you know, this WHO recommendation that came out. It said you should really discontinue anti-seizure medications without a taper after 72 hours with a, without a seizure in infants with a normal EEG and neurologic exam. Um, and they sort of dug in deeper and said, well, some of the data we're looking at was prior to this recommendation. So that could have played a role. And then also um, the uh, the the fact that some of these anti-seizure medications, such as phenobarb, make that neurological exam sort of challenging, um, That and that could have played a role there. Um, so the limitations to the study really, I mean, they did not look at the type dose or duration of any of the anti-seizure medications. They didn't look at seizure burden burden on outcome because of the lack of data. Um, and then, of course, the seizures that were reported by the parents were subject to bias. And we really couldn't um, differentiate between the type and frequency of post-discharge seizures. Uh, but in conclusion, infants with HIE and seizures uh, discharged home on anti-seizure medication really varies throughout centers, um, and it's substantial, and it could be associated with a higher risk of death or disability. And the important thing to note here is that this patient population has a really low risk for epilepsy, um, and the data here suggests that some of the infants with resolved seizures associated with HIE may not warrant potential risks of continuing the anti-seizure medication at discharge. Um, but as all good studies, there we still need more. So further studies mm. are needed on the efficacy, long-term effects of anti-seizure medication, as well as identifying which patients are at higher risk of epilepsy that may warrant that continuation of medication. Um, and that research on the factors that impact clinical decision to continue or discontinue medication uh, would be meaningful. And this could be an opportunity for some evidence-based practice recommendations. Right. Um, so I thought, yeah, this was an interesting study where, you know, we sort of have, have a recommendation, like, are we in line with it? It really is variable per mm. center. Um, I want to... Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to just just uh, emphasize something you said that the the risk of seizures is increased in HIE but what they mentioned is that the risk of epilepsy mm -hmm. right so that that's that's really a critical difference and, and you mentioned it correctly but I want to just make sure people don't um, misunderstand what we're talking about because it's the risk of epilepsy that we're looking at now I think this is a this is to me a very interesting paper Um I think you you read the title, you read some of the paper, and you're like, okay, so maybe like the babies who get discharged home on uh, anti-seizure medications are just a kid with severe HIE, you know, and they're the sicker ones. Mm -hmm. But when you look at table two and you look at their hospital course, the comparison groups are pretty much uh, very much similar, right? So. Yeah. Uh, uh, similar numbers of, of kids with severe HIE in both groups, uh, similar numbers of kids who had hypotension, similar number of babies with uh, persistent pulmonary hypertension, similar groups in, in uh, their length of stay, in their uh, so on and so forth. So that's something that's, that's, that was very interesting. I do think that the biggest uh, 
weakness of the study is really the fact that they were limited in having access to the the presence of EEG okay. seizure uh, among the infants who received who had an EEG. So obviously, not everyone has an EEG, and and some of them uh, who do then may have seizures on EEG. And then they were saying how they were missing uh, data for 68 infants because obviously, if a baby still has seizure on an EEG, then Maybe that's a reason to send the baby home on anti-seizure medications. However, I think what's interesting to me is that HIE is so traumatic for patients and families mm -hmm. that as soon as we reach some stability, we're very inclined to say, oh, you know, just like, just, just get this family to take this baby home and finally end this ordeal, right? And you're like, and if you are still on Keppra or if you're still on Phenobarb, depending on what you use, you win, you win this as an outpatient, right? And you're like, at least now this family gets to come. But you're looking at this data and you're like, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe we should just do a, make an effort to, to win them before they go home, especially if there's not, I, I think, if you have a complex baby that's seizing, that potentially could have epilepsy, then it's a whole different ballgame. But how many times you start them because they get cooled or because they initially have a seizure? And then you're like, well, you know, like, we'll, we'll sort everything else out. And this you'll figure out with a neurologist as an outpatient. Um, very interesting, very interesting data from mm -hmm. the NICHD. What do you think, Dr. And they did, I thought, you know, we did this a seizure uh, article a few weeks ago when we did this. It may, may have been last month, but they did include clinical and and mm -hmm. electrographic seizures, which I do think is important. I mean, there's a shift, right? In this, this the, the earliest study here was 2000. That was like 23 years ago. There's been a shift in management. Mm -hmm. There's been a shift in the use of medications and what medications we're using. And so I do think that that, um, that was the difference here with the compared to the other studies that have previously been mm -hmm. done. Yeah. yeah, I don't have much to add except that, you know, we don't, we don't have a consensus. I've worked with like a dozen neurologists and they all have a different idea about how to tackle this. So I do think, um, I think we are develop we have enough information to start developing some guidelines. But to your point about families, Ben, I think it makes us feel better not to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, um, the impact when we say to a parent, you have to go home on the seizure medication is actually not one of relief. <laughs> it, I, I find that they do not want to go home with seizure medications. And I, I think it adds an additional stressor and burden on them. You know, we say, oh, the, the seizures should resolve, right? They're part of this acute uh, situation, but we're going to send you on all these medications just in case. And so I, in my experience, parents do not like going home. I, I don't, I, no, I, I agree. I, I don't think that's, that's what I meant to say, but saying that parents yeah. are happy to go home on anti-seizure medication. I think that when we offer the prospect of saying, Hey, everything is good. We are just on these medications. You can mm -hmm. go home now and wean this with the neurologist as an outpatient, or we can keep you an additional seven days as we wean your phenobarbital or something. Parents are like, no, I'll, I'll take my baby home right now and mm -hmm. I'll wean this. So while I don't think, I don't think they rejoice at the idea they they definitely <laughs> seize very often uh, my experience has been that they they do seize the opportunity of going home right there and then and figuring out the weaning of this medication once they go home rather than just keep staying in this dreadful place that the NICU is for seven days just so that we can titrate slowly their phenobarb um but yeah well and the who recommendation said 
without a taper. So, I mean, I do, that's right. like, that's also right. a, a controversy is I, I remember those phenobarb weans and then having to teach the parents like, okay, we're going to do this time <laughs> and this time, and then we're going to go down. And so it is complex. It's not like a, you just start it and then you stop. And so there, there's another question that's posed is, do you have, I mean, for phenobarb, do you have to wean? I mean, I think it. I think. I think what uh, you you did mention that in the presentation. It's how long you've been on it. I think you said seventy two right. hours mm-hmm. and off. I think it's just like steroids. It's just like everything else. I think if you are right. on it for two weeks, then maybe maybe I will consult the pharmacist and the neurologist about a slower wean. But it's true. If it's just forty eight hours, seventy two hours, then then let's do it. Let's just stop it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have two more papers. I'm leaving one for last. It's actually a lot of fun. This one you guys are going to enjoy. It's a short one. The The next one I have is uh, published in Pediatric Research. It's called Premature Infant Born... Premature infants born before 28 weeks with acute kidney injury have an increased risk of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. First author is mm-hmm. Michelle Starr, who uh, we say hi to, who uh, was on the podcast and who um, is, is just a great uh, researcher. Um, so... The background is interesting. There's mounting evidence to show that um, BPD is actually a systemic issue. It's not just an issue of just your lung being underdeveloped. And um, and they're mentioning that AKI, acute kidney injury, is is a very common comorbidity in premature infants. And it happens in, in reported 40% of ELBWs. Now, um, AKI was initially thought to be an isolated organ dysfunction, but there's recent work that has shown that it's an actually an inflammatory, con- there's an inflammatory condition that contributes to the dysfunction of other organs, including the lung. And the authors have reported some association between AKI and a higher likelihood of BPD with some papers saying four times more likely to develop BPD in patients with AKI to some saying 70% more likely. The mechanism of, asso- of this association, however, is unknown. Now, the authors are saying, could it just be altered angiogenesis, uh, something that's been observed in animal models um, that um, is seen in premature infants after kidney injury? Now, there are biomarkers that we could test to identify these angiogenic uh, disruption. So they did a few things. They evaluated the relationship between AKI and BPD in prematurely born infant, and they actually used data from the PEANUT trial, which is a paper that we reviewed on the podcast, which is the preterm uh, erythropoietin neuroprotection trial, which is where they gave EPO for neuroprotection in preterm infants. They also had an additional question, which is, is severe AKI independently associated with moderate to severe BPD? And then they measured some uh, urinary biomarkers of angiogenesis to see if they could establish any correlation. So they looked at uh, the PINOT trial, which basically included infants who were born between 24 and 27 and 6 weeks uh, of gestation in uh, the participating NICUs. They were enrolled at less than 24 hours of age. And they all had uh, central access. Now, they excluded babies with major life-threatening brain, cardiac, or chromosomal anomalies. They had, um, if they had any sort of coagulopathy, DIC, um, if they had a high hematocrit, or if they had uh, high drops or congenital infections. So they used the K, uh, K-DIGO, like the kidney disease improved global outcomes definition of AKI which basically looks at uh, the change in serum creatinine uh, and basically stages it from zero to three. Uh, we'll have the table in our in our note. It's in the supplemental material. I pulled it out and it's in my notes that we'll, we'll post on the website. They defined severe AKI as stage two or three. The primary outcome was grade two or three BPD, BPD defined by the Jensen criteria. 
Now, in an exploratory analysis, they measured urinary biomarkers in a sample of infants with known AKI and BPD status available. Um, and that was in 106 infants, which is much smaller than the overall cohort that they looked at for these other uh, primary outcomes. The vascular and the, the, the biomarkers that they looked at were uh, vascular endothelial growth factors, uh, v, VEGF A and D. Uh, they looked at TIE2, they looked at angiopoietin 1, angiopoietin 2, erythropoietin, placental growth factor, and fibroblast growth factor um, in the first available urine sample obtained in the first week of life. Now, um, the urinary androgenesis biomarkers are potential early indicators of BPD in preterm infants, and um, as angiogenesis is involved in vascular development of both the kidney and the lung, which is why they, they looked at these specifically. Now. Um, 885 infants were included in the study, 70% of which had grade two or three BPD. So that's, that was a large proportion of these infants. Um, infants with, uh, moderate to severe BPD, uh, grade two or three, um, or death had significantly lower birth weights, lower gestational ages, um, and were more likely to be small for gestational age than those who had no BPD or grain one BPD. That is actually good to know, just to make sure that the, the like this is data that's consistent with other published reports. So uh, this just um, this just important data, I guess, to to report uh, in those results. Now, of the study population, 33% had acute kidney injury within the first 28 days, and and again, I, I would have. I mean, it's it's remarkable that it's such a large number. I think, again, we tend to overlook AKI. Infants with AKI were more likely to be born at lower gestational ages and have lower birth weights. They were also more likely to have complications during their neonatal course, including a higher frequency of necrotizing enterocolitis, patent ductus arteriosus, and sepsis. So let's look at some of these outcomes that we're interested in. Infants with AKI were more likely to have the composite outcome of grade 2 or 3 BPD or death, 74% versus 63%. What's super interesting, and I'll post a graph this week on Twitter, there was a dose-response effect of both the exposure and the outcome. That is, that infants with higher stages of AKI were more likely to develop BPD, and infants with um, AKI had a higher risk of moderate or severe BPD. So... Um, quite interesting, that sort of correlation between the degree of kidney injury and the severity of BPD. When they looked at some of these urinary biomarkers in those 106 infants, um, what they, they didn't really notice anything interesting, basically. They, they saw that infants in the babies who had AKI, the ones who developed BPD had a higher, though insignificant, so not statistically significant, uh, levels of urinary biomarkers compared to those who did not develop BPD. The ones that were elevated were um, VEGF-A, VEGF-D, and TIE-2 with an area under the curve of 0.6. So not really something that's earth shattering that I think we should all tomorrow start testing, but interesting nonetheless. And so the conclusions are that in extremely preterm infants, AKI is associated with grade 2 and 3 BPD or death. Uh, they also report that infants with grade 2 or 3 BPD uh, have differences in some of these urinary angiogenesis biomarkers. And so what they're saying is that the impact of this work really is its potential to drive more work to decrease BPD development through better understanding of these angiogenesis mechanistic pathways. And I think that's definitely something that's not been explored as readily as should. And um, so I, I agree with Michelle on, on, these, uh, on these outcomes and conclusion. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Is it that the 
the sicker babies are just sicker, right? They have all this inflammation and then so they have all these long-term consequences or is it part of the pathophysiology that we just don't really understand yeah, yet? And or, and or uh, is that inflammation and injury then suddenly changes uh, changes right. the 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 makeup of your of your androgenesis the potential exactly. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> but 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 bless the neonatologists who are who are doing the kidney research. You know, I think it's such an elusive organ. <laughs> it's nice to have neos that are helping us bridge bridge the divide between yeah. neos and nephrologists i think there's a so. i think there's a this is a new frontier and i, and I think there's a lot For of sure. great researchers working on that and i'm curious to see they're going to come up with something that is going to become like so obvious 10 years down the road they would be like oh yeah, my god i right. can't believe we were not doing this. you guys have been ignoring the kidney yeah. all this yeah. time you know <laughs> especially in these tiniest babies and our bpd baby like we know that fluid management it we know it's related uh, right yeah. we just don't know how or why all right. Okay. Um, I have one more. Please. Well, I have two more. I have one and a half more. Two. And you have one more. Yeah. Okay. I'll go next. I have another journal of perinatology uh, paper, The Dilemma of Feeding During the Treatment of Patent Dectus Arteriosus with Oral Ibuprofen in Preterm Infants Less Than or Equal to 30 Weeks of Gestation, a Randomized Controlled Trial. I do love a paper that tells you exactly what the paper is about yeah. in the title. Um, lead author, uh, Sama Deep. Kaur and trailing author, the uh, Slima Kala Thingal. Mm-hmm. I think I'm getting better yep. at names. You did fantastic. Okay. <laughs> I think, so they really wanted to look at the effect of a minimal, quote unquote, minimal enteral feeding versus um, what was their unit practice withholding feeding on time, withholding feeding during treatment with ibuprofen um, to target uh a quote-unquote hemodynamically significant PDA, and um, what was the effect of the different types of management on the time to reach full feeds. It was a single-center randomized controlled trial of 126 premature infants born less than or equal to 30 weeks gestation. Um, They had to be less than seven days of age with a hemodynamically significant PDA which I'll tell you what their criteria was. And they compared, like I said, uh, continuing minimal enteral feeding versus no feeding during treatment. Um, Their inclusion criteria were all intramural preterm infants less than or equal to 30 weeks gestation on any form of respiratory support diagnosed with a hemodynamically significant PDA for which the team thought they needed early treatment with oral ibuprofen. Uh, exclusion criteria, uh, contraindications for use of ibuprofen, such as active bleeding, GI bleeding, intracranial hemorrhage grade two or higher, or thrombocytopenia less than 60, um, significant impairment of renal function with creatinine greater than 1.5, congenital heart disease with duct-dependent pulmonary uh, systemic circulation, major congenital or chromosomal uh, or gastrointestinal anomalies, severe shock, uh, the need for treatment of PDA after the first week of life or infants that were already on a pretty significant, on a more significant feed volume greater than 60 mLs per kilo per day. So let's get to some of the definitions. Obviously, there is debate about <laughs> what is a hemodynamically significant PDA. And obviously, there is debate about whether or not we should treat it or not anyways. So that is not the point of the article. Um, and we know that PDAs are still being treated um, worldwide. Um, and there's this discussion around what do we do with feeding? 
So their criteria for hemodynamically significant PDA requiring treatment in the study were the presence of all of the following, a PDA size greater than 1.5 millimeter, a left atrium to aortic ratio of greater than equal to 1.4, and a left pulmonary artery end diastolic velocity greater than or equal to 30 centimeters per second. Their treatment regimen was oral ibuprofen at a dose of 10, 5, and 5 milligrams per kilogram at 0, 24, and 48 hours, respectively. And then the definitions for the feeding groups. So the feeding group infants um, received 20 mLs per kilo per day of feeds advancement, um, typically. And then for the three days of treatment, um, they were... Uh, they just stayed at the 20 mLs per kilo per day. So they were enrolling babies very early on in admission. So they'd stay at 20 mLs per kilo per day of feeds, and then they would advance by 20 mLs per kilo per day of feeds. In the non-feeding group, they'd get no feeds for three days, and then they were advanced by 20 mLs per kilo per day to full feeds, so at least 12 days. Some other details, if the infant required a second course, they continued to receive feeding depending on their group. So if you were in the no feeding group, you didn't feed for six days. And if you were in the minimal enteral feeding group, you fed for the 20 mLs per kilo for those six days. Um, if ibuprofen was substituted with paracetamol, Tylenol due to GI uh, concerns, infants in both groups were kept NPO and then they continued in their original group. Um, they gave some criteria for feeding intolerance and when they would stop. Um, they define neck as bell stage two or greater. And they also even had parameters for checking and refeeding residuals, which is also a, a hot topic. Yeah, they're not afraid of controversy. I mean, first of all, the paper in, That's in, right. in and of itself is like they're they're <laughs> it's controversial. Yeah, they're they're not afraid. So I'm, I'm, kudos for them <laughs> to them to just uh... listen. I think I think there are, I think. There's so much confusion that that centers are saying, well, like, if we've decided to treat, like, what what are we going to do? So that you know, they're just trying to figure it out in their in their center. So um, their baseline characteristic. Oh, sorry. The primary outcome was the time to reach a full feed volume of 150 mL per kilo per day. Secondary outcomes were episodes of feeding intolerance, SIP, uh, late onset sepsis, GI bleed, neck, and other comorbidities: IVH, PVL, BPD, ROP. Um, in the year prior to the study, their policy was to stop feeding during treatment, which is not uncommon, uh, even in the, some of the places that we've worked at then. Um, and then the average days to full enteral feed was 15 plus or minus four days. In this group, they had a median gestational age and birth weight of 29 weeks and 1,200 grams, respectively. Um, in both the groups, the mean age at enrollment, I thought this was very interesting, was 16 hours in the feeding group, 16 hours of life, and 14 hours of life in the no feeding group. They had 54 infants in the feeding group and 46 infants in the no feeding group um, that reached the primary outcome to be analyzed. A total of 16 infants in the feeding group and 20 infants in the no feeding group died, of which 10 infants in the feeding group and 16 infants in the no feeding group died before reaching the primary outcome of full feeds. Mmm. <laughs> However, the pri for the primary outcome, there was no significant difference in the primary outcome between the two groups of getting to full feeds. The median time to reach full feeds was 16 days in both the groups. 
I thought that in and of itself was very interesting. So they standardized starting feeds and they still didn't get there faster. Um, the secondary outcomes, uh, there was no significant difference in secondary outcomes, such as feeding intolerance before reaching full feeds. Um, there was no difference in incidence of feed interruption due to causes other than feeding intolerance, like sepsis, apneas, respiratory deterioration, hypotension, blood transfusions, the incidence of next stage two or more, SIP, uh, late onset sepsis, total duration of respiratory support, duration of hospital stay, weighted discharge, IVH, BPD, ROP, and mortality, all similar in both groups. So so basically the same. I wanted to say one more thing. I, I want to say one more thing. Overall, the PDA closure rate was 100% with medical management, which I also thought was very interesting. I need to get there. But, we need to get their manufacturer of ibuprofen to come to our... That's <laughs> Oral. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so it's interesting. So I just want to go back to something you said. They 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 had some deaths and then they excluded these mm-hmm. and then analyzed. But somehow, for people who may have missed this point that you you mentioned, om, like only ten. So ten and sixteen died in each group. That's right. Ten in the feeding group. Sixteen in the non-feeding group. Right. Crazy. So you, I mean, you would think. Like there's all this the stigma around feeding during the, risk. the feeding during right, treatment, the risk. but it turns yeah. out that it's the ones who were made NPO who had. Uh, I don't know if that ends up being significant. Mm-hmm. But I didn't look in the paper really, but uh, crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't translate into well, the data think- analysis at the end because they were excluded. But still, ten versus sixteen is pretty significant. Well, and I think we're learning more and more about the importance of, you know, a a. a a non-leaky gut and mm-hmm. of which feeding helps with that, right? Absolutely. And there's some preliminary studies about reducing inflammation, feeding during HIE, things like that, or during therapeutic hypothermia. So, I mean, I thought it was an interesting study. Uh, we don't do either of those things at our unit. No. So, and I'm sure other units are doing all sorts of things. It's another place where we just don't have We're probably like every other practice. unit. There are some of us who would like to keep moving up. There's some of us who would like to stay where we're at. There's some of us who would like to just stop them. And it's just, I guess it's a, it's interesting to see that. I mean, still still relatively small numbers, but 60 versus 60 is, is sure. plenty for, for normal distribution purposes and stuff. Um, so no, interesting stuff. And of course, there are some units that are aren't treating the PDA at all, so they don't have to have this mm-hmm. discussion. Yeah. That's right. Um, okay. What is you want to do your next paper, Daphna? Since you're on a roll. Oh, you you want to go save the best for last? I That's think, what you're saying. Yes, I think. I mean, okay. it's not my paper. I didn't Fine. write it, but I mean, that's no, just. I know. <laughs> I know you're very excited about this paper. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm not going to do a full review, um, but I think this is a very interesting paper. It's a total hot topic. So um, it's a pre-proof in the Journal of Pediatrics. Um, if you were at the AAP Scottsdale conference um, for like the section you. on neonatal perinatal medicine, like I was, <laughs> I had the honor of attending. Um, this was... Uh, the discussion around what is your clinical FTE and productivity and uh, why don't we, what, what is our pay structure and why is our pay structure? This was the topic of many um, uh, discussions and uh, some of those were standing room only. And um, Dr. Satyan, I'm going to say his last name right, Lakshmin Rusimha. 
think I did it, um, has written on this uh, topic um, extensively. And um, we've had on the women in neonatology group to, to talk about some of these really important um, workforce factors that affect our day-to-day life. So um, this article was low, is entitled Low Compensation for Academic Pediatric Medical, Sub- Medical Specialists, Role of Medicaid, Productivity, Work Hours, and Gender. Um, so I think it's a great paper just to review if this is a topic that can, that is of concern to you. Um, interestingly, uh, Dr. Satyan, when, um, uh, he gave this lecture. He he doesn't leave out all of uh, the private practice neos, but um, this particular article uh, is talking about academics and in, in in particular. But we have parallels um, in both um, types of of workforce. But the gist is really talking about like what are the main differences uh, for why the pediatric uh, medical specialties um, are getting paid less than say our adult counterparts. And um, they he lists four major factors. The first of which is low Medicaid reimbursement. Um, the second of which uh, the productivity benchmarks are different. In general, um, the pediatric specialties have lower patient volumes, potentially lower disease complexity, varying procedures, and this much greater added time for interaction with parents and guardians and uh, talking to the parents separately from the kids can potentially contribute to lower pediatric productivity. However, for those of us in neonatology, we are an exception with the lowest dollar uh, per uh, work RVU value among all medical specialties. And neonatology contributes to a large proportion of WRV, uh, of work-related RVUs to academic pediatric departments. Um, so, so we bring in the big bucks, basically. We bring in the bu- the big bucks. We work more, which I'll tell you about. We work more than uh, most of the other subspecialists. So, um, but is our pay uh, uh, commensurate with that? Mm-hmm. It's not. Um, the thec- the third factor uh, that may contribute to lower compensation in pediatric subspecialists is quote unquote fewer work hours. So relative to say family medicine, work hours including all medically related activities were lower for general pediatrics by minus 288 hours per year. However, work hours were much higher for neonatologists plus 564 work hours per year, uh, but not necessarily different in the other pediatric subspecialties. So you know, we are lumped in with all of the pediatric subspecialties, but actually our work and our pay and the amount of time we work is a little bit different. And the final factor, we've been talking about this, um, is, is gender distribution among U.S. providers. So active pediatric providers are predominantly female, 64%, compared with family medicine, 41%, and internal medicine, 38%. And we know that there are gender inequities in salary um, and contribute to low compensation to pediatric providers. Um and this graph is striking. So when you talk about uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, there are maybe, I should have counted, six, eight graphs um, at the end of this uh, pre-proof, which describe all sorts of things. Uh, where are we in terms of our adult subspecialists? Um, where are you in terms of state reimbursement? Um, and then in particular, this one about the percentage of, of female providers in a field is like inversely related to uh, the pay. 
Um, even though this is interesting, there's a general perception that female physicians earn less because they work fewer hours or see fewer patients. But even when adjusted for these factors, uh, female physicians still earn less than their male peers. Um, and the data shows that um, uh, for patients they haven't st- done this study in pediatric patients, but for um, elderly patients treated by female internists, they have lower mortality, they have less readmission rates. Um, and so is it possible <laughs> that they're they're making less money for the hospitals because the patients are are health are staying healthier <laughs> because of their care? Um, and so uh, is there better care potentially by female physicians contributing to low productivity measured by our view generation. So a lot of things to think about, um, a lot of graphs that I think are a good jumping off point um, and, and uh, points of discussion. But I think he makes some, they make some good recommendations about what can we all do uh, when talking about pay equity. So obviously a discussion about Medicaid parity with Medicaid is with Medicare is urgently needed. Um, new measures are being adopted by CMS to enhance Medicaid and address uh, health-related social needs to expand access to quality, affordable care, um, but doesn't necessarily discuss provider reimbursement. Increased pediatric representation on agencies that determine coding and RVU assignments is needed, and a coordinated effort from physician leaders, patient advocates, and organizations to address comparatively low compensation among pediatric specialty physicians uh, is direly needed. So definitely, we'll post some of these uh, graphs, um, but definitely take a look. It's yeah, definitely don't look. Point of I, was, I would say. Do not look at this paper before Don't service look. week, <laughs> before you go on service, because you're going to feel like, oh, man, after, yeah, you come was, off, um, after you come off, you can look at it. <laughs> and it was really interesting how, like you said, neonatology makes a lot of money for hospitals, um, but the, the reimbursement is not, does, it's not evident. It's not commensurate. <laughs> it's not commensurate. So, okay. That was interesting. All right. All right, drum roll. And, and so Satyan is going to be on the podcast. I mean, he's sort of, I mean, we're saying this, the invitation has not formally gone out, but he's informally agreed. <laughs> but he still has to accept. He's informally agreed. I spoke to him in person and I said, Satyan, <laughs> you're coming on the podcast. I'd be like, that'd be great. And so it's going to happen. Just we have to find yeah, the time. Yeah, the hard thing is we have so many things to talk about. Not just this paper so many things yeah he does a lot of illustrations illustrations are amazing yeah Yeah. like Mm -hmm. how do you even get Mm -hmm. started in that maybe we'll do like a lex friedman podcast like three hour long (laughs) (laughs) he hasn't signed up for that yet oh my all right um last paper for today is a paper that i got hooked by the title it says language exposure for preterm infants Mm -hmm. is reduced relative to fetuses First author is I loved this paper. <laughs> I know. First author is Brian Monson. It's in the Journal of Pediatrics. It's from a group out of the US. The background is super interesting. They mentioned how auditory function begins as early as 23 weeks of gestation. Um, mm-hmm. and that preterm infants undergo a rapid and premature change in auditory experience as they transition from the intrauterine acoustic environment to the neonatal intensive care unit. The um intrauterine environment is quite unique unique with constant primarily low frequency sounds of mother's cardiovascular and digestive system and voice transmitted to the fetal to the fetal ear via amniotic fluid 
Extrauterine sounds are modified by transmission through abdominal tissue, which provides some attenuation, possibly more pronounced at higher frequencies. Now, when you contrast this with the NICU, uh, where infants are exposed to high sound levels, electronic and mechanical noises, and periods of silence transmitted via air rather than fluid, now it is presumed that these auditory exposures in the NICU differ from fetal exposure, the extent of which is unknown. Now, their goal in this study was to analyze the auditory exposures for typically developing fetuses compared to NICU infants. It was a prospective study, and they included um, pregnant uh, mothers who were 19 years old or more, uh, who were 20 weeks or more of gestation, but less than 32 weeks, and who had no pregnancy complications. Uh, the families of preterm infants were approached by practitioners in the NICU, and they included uh, similar patients where mothers were above the age of 19, the babies were less than 32 weeks uh, 32 weeks or less of gestational age, and they obviously excluded babies with congenital anomalies, infection, or uh, any type of prenatal brain lesion. So what was the intervention? So they basically used this thing called the, the LENA for the fetal exposures, and it's basically like a little, it looks like, if you're listening in the car, it basically looks like a good old pager. Um, so it's like a small rectangular device with a small LCD screen. And basically, it was placed in a fabric pouch. It was attached almost like as a necklace, but worn around the neck, and it dangled pretty much around the abdomen so that it would capture the sounds around the mother's abdomen. Um, and it was uh, placed for a 24-hour period. And during sleep, they would place it at the bedside so that the mother would not really fall on it, and they would just be close by, but not on the, the, on the mother. Um, recording took place twice per week and uh, throughout the third trimester. And basically, the parents were allowed to pick the day, but it just had to do it twice per week. And now for the NICU exposure, they used the same device and they attached it to the inside wall of the crib near the infant's head. Um, and they only, um, the recordings were made inside the infant's incubator. Only open cribs were, were used for a variety of reasons. So um, 27 pregnancies and 24 uh, NICU babies were included, and it accumulated to more than 23,000 hours of auditory exposures. So that's, that's quite impressive. The participation was approximately 12 weeks for the fetal group and about five weeks for the NICU group. The postmenstrual age during data collection ranged from 22 weeks to 41 weeks postmenstrual age across fetal participants, and the postmenstrual age in the NICU was 26 to 44 weeks. So, very preterm infants received an estimated 0.53 hour per day. So half an hour. So yeah, that's that's always tricky, right? When you say 0.53, so it's about half of an hour of exposure to adult language, nearly five times less than the 2.6 hour per day estimated for fetuses. So right away, this is already quite significant. These exposures resulted in an adult word count estimates of 7,000 something words per day for preterm infants compared to 36,000 for fetuses. So language exposure dramatically reduced. For fetuses, 69% of adult language exposure was female, whereas 88% of adult language exposure was female for very preterm infants. So interestingly enough, the breakdown of male versus female voices is completely skewed when uh, they end up in the NICU and they end up being exposed to more female voices. And they're not really trying to go into what is the implication of that, but I think in an, at face value, it's an interesting finding. Very preterm infants had more exposure to electronic sounds um, 
5.1 hours versus 1.3 hours compared to fetuses and airborne noises 4.4 hours versus 2.8 hours um, than fetuses. Finally, fetuses, while that's something that was just mind blowing to me, while fetuses never experience silence owing to the presence of mother's heartbeat and other biological sounds in utero, preterm infants spend an estimated of 4.7 hours per day in silence. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. Whereas language and total extra uterine sound exposure cycles for fetuses show the expected marked day-night pattern with low exposure during nighttime hours, preterm infants in the NICU showed less change across a 24-hour cycle, which is not surprising. The NICU is busy 24-7, and so they never really had that that decrease in the cycle. And so um, the conclusion was that some preterm infants may incur deficits of over 150 hours of language exposure over the preterm period. And given the known effects of prenatal slash preterm language exposure on neurobehavioral outcome, this magnitude of deficit is alarming. They have some pie chart, which we'll post on Twitter, but man, crazy. I mean, I don't even have anything to say because the data speaks for itself. Like, I, I mean, and this is, this is again, something you could take to the bedside. There, there are ways we can change this up, right? Super yeah, interesting, I mean, but don't be too loud, right? Like, that's the other thing is like, we don't want the decibel exposure to be too loud either. It's a very, it's an, it's a fascinating study that I, yeah, is mind blown, I would say, in terms of what they looked at and how they were able to accomplish the, the, the data, getting that mm-hmm. data. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, okay. I guess we went over time, Priya. We always, we always do. do, but that's okay. Now, now with the journal club shorts, people can just listen to whichever article they yeah. want. Um, by the way, People, people to know, the Journal Club shorts do not include every article. It's sort of like the three, four big articles that we reviewed. Um, but yeah, this was fun. Um, Priya, Daphna, I'll see you guys later. Have a good uh, Sunday. And um, yeah, we'll be around you, on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast, or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.